Welcome to Law Technology Now with host Monica Bay, Editor-in-Chief of ALM's award-winning magazine, Law Technology News. Hear the latest about technology for the legal community. If it's tech, it's a topic right here. And good day from New York. I'm Monica Bay. Uh, Welcome to Law Technology Now, our October edition. And I have two fantastic guests today. They are both frequent contributors to Law Technology News, and they are the authors of our October issue cover story called Crash or Soar. And they are Anne Kershaw and Joseph Howie, and they're going to talk today about predictive coding. But before we do, um, Anne, Joe, would you each tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and what your background is? Sure, Monica, and thank you. Thank you for having us on the show and and for publishing our our article and information about the study on predictive coding. I am Anne Kershaw. I'm the co-founder and president of the eDiscovery Institute, which is a nonprofit research organization that studies the use of technology in litigation processes and measures the extent to which it saves money and improves quality, if it does. And I'm also the owner of a litigation and data management consulting firm that bears my name, A. Kershaw, PC, Attorneys and Consultants. And Joe, how about you? Uh, Thank you, Monica. My name is Joe Howie, and uh, I am Director of Metrics Development and Communications for the eDiscovery Institute. And uh, I also have a a consulting company, Howie Consulting, where I uh, write and consult on eDiscovery and legal automation. Terrific. Well, I think you're in for an exciting podcast. Um, I like the way that both of you start off uh, uh, setting the stage for your article uh, by talking about the the history of of what you called brute force linear review of electronic data, where lawyers would start at one end of a document and march through it document by document, making decisions about relevance, confidentiality, privilege, topic, and importance. And then you go on to discuss clustered uh, which, of course, we all know is where the software groups like documents together. But you say now that there is a new and exciting and cost-sensitive tool that might make some lawyers very, very queasy. <laughs> so uh, would one of you like to take the mic and tell us a little bit about what is predictive coding and, and what might give a little nausea to some of the uh, uh, lawyers at first blush? Well, predictive coding has been around uh, quite a while, actually, and it comes in many flavors, uh, but the essential idea is that you identify a group of documents um, by clustering, say, uh, on topics that you know are relevant. And then the software, through various ways of doing this, and and many of them are um, similar it, the software will go and find basically all of the documents then on the same topic. And in this way, if you are coding for relevance or even if you are coding the documents to apply to certain issues or claims in a case, the software will predictively apply those codes for you. Obviously, this would save a tremendous amount of money. Um, I think many of your readers know that one of the big challenges with electronic data is the amount of duplication and duplicative uh, data, which may not be exact duplicates, but is certainly information on the same topic. So as I understand it, if you were to sum it up, this is where the computer learns from 
somewhat of a minimal amount of of uh, attorney guidance from a, a subset of the of the data, and then uses the information that the attorneys have given to diagnose, if you will, the the rest of the volume. Is, is am I am I simplifying it too much? I think that's essentially correct. The idea is to take an, an, an early look at a subset of the, of the records to make review decisions on those, and then the different companies have different different methods of, of basically propagating those decisions or, or uh, ranking other records according to how closely they match the initial decision. And, Monica, what I think gives lawyers heartburn is the, I think, misplaced notion that Somehow this means that all the documents are not being analyzed or read. The comfort level for many lawyers is, of course, reading every document, which is very expensive and in many cases just simply not feasible. But when you actually work with these software programs and use predictive coding, what you find is what's really happening is is that you are leveraging the best of both the technology and the lawyer and the lawyer's thinking and brain. And actually, the lawyer's analysis is improved um, and in many ways uh, over having to read every document in a linear brute force way. And in your article, you uh, talk about a survey that, that your institute conducted with 11 of the major um, e-discovery vendors. Uh, it's quite an impressive list. You've got Capital Legal Solutions, Catalyst Repository Systems, Equivio, FTI. I'm going to, I'm probably going to mispronounce this one, Gallivan, Gallivan, and Omelia, uh, Hot Neuron, Interleges, Kroll, Recommind, Valora Technologies and Xerox Lit Services. That's that's a, a heady list there. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about the survey and what your goals were when you uh, decided to run it. I mean, the, the the idea behind the survey was was to try and gather some some data points, some metrics around uh, how useful is predictive coding, what kind of savings can people achieve? So the, the, the purpose of the survey was to uh, you know, have them quantify savings, uh, again, so that we, we've got some data points. And when people talk about predictive coding, they have some idea of the magnitude of the savings. I mean, what we found was that uh, over, over all of the respondents, that, that predictive coding could save 45% of the cost of review. And, you know, generally people talk about, like we started out our conversation, talking about the fact that you don't have to look at every record necessarily. Uh, at least one of the uh, parties that confirmed the survey results uh, informed me that one of the things they do is they, they have some clients who still want to look at every record, but they use the ranking provided by predictive coding so that they could assign the, the hottest documents, the most relevant documents, the most experienced people, and then use lower-cost personnel to, to go through the lower-ranking records. So there, there are a couple different ways that you achieve savings on that. And there's also the consistency feature. Um, when you used something like predictive coding, the enhanced consistency that you get with respect to the decisions that are made about documents is um, uh, far away better than any other process you could use in document review. The, the reality is, is that when you have different people reading documents about a case, 
people have different minds and they hear things differently and read things differently and consistency through the usual brute force linear review process is very poor. People make different decisions um, about documents on the same topics um, and when that is measured, it is shocking at how often that happens. When you use predictive coding, you eliminate, uh, I think, I think, Joe, you'll agree, you eliminate virtually all of the inconsistency problems, which is why I'm saying that in addition to the cost savings, the quality is, is over far and away again better than any other form of review because, again, now with the consistency and leveraging the best of the analysis that the lawyers bring to the table and using the software, you've got uh, really a great uh, document review process. And Anne, in the article, you, you made reference to a study that you participated in with with our colleague Patrick Oot and uh, Herb Royblatt that appeared in a um, the Journal of the American Society for Information Science and Technology. Uh, that was a situation where they actually divided up two teams to test this theory, correct? Yes, that, that study was a bit different um, in that we were seeking to determine to what extent two different software processes in document review were able to replicate the original review done by a read-only, read-every-document in a linear process. Um, we actually had the original review measured against another uh, brute force review by people and to uh, software reviews. And that study was peer-reviewed, which is why it's in the Journal of American Society for Information Science and Technology. Um, So we did get a lot of input and feedback from various scientists across the country on both the design of the study and how it came out. And um, what we saw was that the software was uh, a lot better at replicating the original human decisions than another set of human beings. Well, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the obstacles to wider adoption and how you two feel that these can be overcome. We'll be back in just a moment. Legal Talk Network has been producing award-winning legal podcasts since 2005. Subscribe to our RSS feed and start downloading today. It's free. Interested in having a show on Legal Talk Network? We'd like to talk to you about building your firm's marketing strategy with legal podcasts. Give us a call at 781-551-9960. That's LegalTalkNetwork.com. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Hi, I'm Monica Bay, editor of Law Technology News, and we are back with Ann Kershaw, and with Joseph Howey talking about our cover story from the October issue of Law Technology News, Crash or Soar, about predictive coding. Uh, We've been talking about some of the advantages, and I think we've touched on transparency. I'm never going to pronounce this right. Replicability. That's Boy, did I butcher that. what about reevaluating production sets and confidentiality? Can you two talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, the, the idea on the confidentiality is that uh, 
corporations have very sensitive documents that are drawn in drawn into the document collections and and the fewer eyes that you have looking at it the 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 fewer concerns you have about confidentiality so with this technology that leverages the time of your best people you you basically require fewer people uh to look at it uh, greatly enhancing the confidentiality of your data and anything well, more you wanted to add on reevaluating your production sets well the idea the idea on unreplicability is that when you have humans look making coding decisions, all you have basically is the decision. It's relevant or it's not relevant. You don't really know why they said it was relevant or, or privileged or not not privileged. Uh, just about all of these systems have a way of, of keeping an audit trail on you know what, what searches they ran or what settings, what parameters they had, and they can record that. And uh, if you wanted to rerun the, the the collection, they could basically replicate the earlier result coming close to 100%. By contrast, as shown by the study that Ann participated in and, and studies by Trek, uh, you could anticipate that if, if one team reviewed a set of records and then a second team reviewed the set of records, the second team might select anywhere from you know, 48% to 58 maybe even 62% of the records that were originally selected as relevant. And, and that's probably what you, what, what real-life expectations ought to be. In, in other words, the, the, the human brute force linear review is, is extremely inconsistent. And, you know, people who are familiar with it know that. Nobody wants to talk about it, but, but, but it's, it's very inconsistent and, and you have a hard time replicating earlier results. And anything else you want to add on that? Um, well, only that as more and more of these studies emerge and more and more of these data points become published, I think that we are seeing a, a tendency to now find the level of reasonableness to be more in the arena of using these technologies for improved consistency and results, and that we will see that perhaps, and of course every case is different, and there are plenty of small cases out there that certainly uh, benefit well from uh, a traditional document review because they're not that big or there aren't that many documents. But when you get into realms of where you have large volumes, uh, I think that this may be the new standard of what is reasonable. Um, you had asked earlier about getting a, a adoption of these technologies and how do we get folks to get comfortable with using them. Um, my answer to that is that it's important for lawyers to dig in and learn how they work. It's really not rocket science. You just have to take the time to understand what's going on with the technology. Ask all the questions that you need to ask, even if you think that there might be a silly question, but ask it. And then look at the results. The results can easily be sampled, and you have a comfort level uh, that is so high, I think that not a lawyer I know would deny that using it would be a good thing. And I think you hit on something that's been a constant theme in the last year, particularly with Craig Ball's uh, uh, EDD column, Ball in Your Court. Uh, Craig is among those who is constantly preaching that any litigator today, and, and I think Judge Faccioli, if I'm pronouncing his name right, um, there's really no excuses anymore for not learning the technology involved with e-discovery and um, that it isn't as hard as people think it should be. So I, I would really resonate on that. Uh, I think I think we're getting to the point where 
as as Judge Facioli said about a year ago at Legal Tech New York, um, you know, you're kind of risking malpractice at this point if if you don't know the technology. Right, right. And everything you could possibly want to know and learn is available on the Internet. Um, you know, you can find people are there, the information is there. You just got to sit down and look it up. I do it every day, several times a day. I hear something new on a technical level or a development level, and, you know, I go learn it. And um, it's a good thing to do. And uh, you actually asked a question in your survey of of why folks aren't using it. And I, I found it very, very interesting because it raised a, a paradox that I, I think we have all seen. Uh, you indicated 10 respondents said, and that's of the 11 participants, that they perceive the reason why there's a resistance to be an uncertainty or fear about whether the judges will accept predictive coding. And yet, ironically, from what I can tell over the last two years, it's the judges like Facioli and and Peck in New York and Scheinlin and uh, Waxy in Kansas who are screaming at the professions saying, hello, hello, wake up, you need to do this. Um, and tell us a story about the recent magistrates conference um, uh, and how that topic came up. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, I did two sessions at two different uh, conferences for the federal mag- judge, magistrate judges this last year, um, and I was teaching them the basics of you know what is metadata, how things work, what it looks like. I you know showed them that, and I also talked about this study. And it's two other studies that we did at the eDiscovery Institute on suppressing duplicates and using threading technology. Um, and I did these sessions, by the way, with uh, Magistrate Judge Francis from the Southern District of New York. And um, there was great, great interest. Um, and one of the questions at the second uh, conference was from one judge who asked, how do we get lawyers to use this stuff? And Ironic. our response was, well, tell them you're not going to sanction them <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if uh, they do. Uh, so, yes, you know, people, people understand. And I think that there is a, um, it is, it's more of a, an emotional issue for lawyers or a, 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 a resistance to change, fear of change, all of these things. And we hope through the Discovery Institute that publishing these types of studies and articles like you have this month in Law Technology News will help people uh, stop resisting the change and embrace these new technologies, learn them, and run with them. And that's a perfect segue to uh, letting people know that they can read your article, Crash or Soar, as part of our EDD showcase in our October issue of Law Technology News, which is available at www. Law Technology News. And, and you're making the um, survey available also uh, for free on your website. Uh, why don't you and Joe tell us how they can get the survey and how they can reach each of you? Joe? Yes, the survey will be on ediscoveryinstitute.org, and uh, I can I can be reached at joe at ediscoveryinstitute.org. Uh, yeah, and I'm at ann at ediscoveryinstitute.org, or 
you Google my name, you'll see my uh, my law firm information. Well, I want to thank our guests, Ann Kershaw and Joseph Howey. They are both involved with the ediscoveryinstitute.org. And I want to thank all of you for listening to our October Law Technology Now podcast. Special thanks goes out, as always, to our team in New York, David Jasper and Jill Winwer, and our team in Boston, Kate Kenny, Lou Ann Reeves, Scott Hess, and Mike Hockman. You can listen to this on the with our partners, the Legal Talk Network at www.legaltalknetwork.com, on ALM at www.lawtechnologynow.com, and because we're so cool, on iTunes. And one final note, remember that there is no crying in baseball or technology. Sorry, Boston. <laughs> The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Law Technology Now is produced by the broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening. Join Monica Bay for next month's podcast on the technology issues affecting the legal profession today.